Welcome to episode 88 of Kyperian Commentary. I am your host, Yuri Brito. It's good to be back with you after a short season in absentia. I was uh, finishing some academic work. It's good to be back. Kyperianism is a short way of speaking about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have been following for almost over a decade now, the, the history of Kyperianism and the beautiful Dutch theology embraced by this a kind theological figure who has influenced so much of the modern discourse and theology. You remember that his famous quote, a quote that uh, my dear guest here will remember quite well, that there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. We are very committed to discussing ancient and contemporary issues with the dogma of Kuiper, not because it is only Kuiper's dogma, but because Kuiper reflected the dogma of the Bible. And today I have uh, an old acquaintance of mine, uh, Grant Castleberry. Grant is a former Marine. He has uh, four children and also the former executive director of the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And he's a senior pastor of Capital Community Church. Grant, welcome to Kyperian, brother. Man, it's good to be here. It's good to, uh, it's good to be on the show, finally. Episode you know. 88. I know. Episode 88 is the right one for you to be in. We've been uh, uh, corresponding for a long time on uh, Twitter, which is where all the wonderful discourses of civilization take place. <laughs> and uh, right. we've been uh, chatting along on a variety of issues over the years, just uh, staying in touch. But the last time I think I saw you face to face was in the on the 10th anniversary of the congregation I serve in Pensacola. Does that sound right? Right. Yeah. 10th anniversary. Yeah. 2012, right? 2000, yep, 2011, 12. We're about to okay. turn 20 years old uh, next year. So okay. uh, God has been very good. I don't know about you, but I've added a, um, uh, a, a cumulative effect of white hair here over here and uh, at other places too. And it uh, looks like you're doing pretty well. You doing well, yeah. my brother? Man, I, I can't believe it's been almost 10 years since has I been. saw you just reflecting on that. Has been a whole uh, decade. Uh, tell me a little bit about... Uh, uh, Capital Community Church. Where is it located? And a little bit about its um, the synopsis of its history. Yeah, it's uh, really in the heart of Raleigh, North Carolina, and it's basically a broad evangelical church. Um, they called me to be the pastor two years ago. Um, I'm a Texan, native Texan, but being in the Marine Corps, I was you know shot to the wind for four years, which brought me to Pensacola and Providence and, and all those things. Um, my wife is from the Carolinas, uh, so we, we kind of visited North Carolina quite a bit. She was on crew staff at Duke, so Raleigh wasn't unfamiliar to us, um, and it puts us on the East Coast close to her family, but it's a joy serving this congregation. Uh, these people uh, were hungry for the Bible, uh, were hungry for Bible exposition, um, and, and one of the interesting things is, you know, so many evangelical churches, you don't know where they're going to fall on any particular issue. You know, they might have a, a doctrinal statement and and whether or not they actually hold that doctrinal statement or enforce it remains to be seen. But this church, uh, when they reached out to me, they asked, uh, do you affirm the five solas of the Reformation uh, the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy, wow. the Danvers statement on complementarianism and the Nashville statement on sexuality and transgenderism and all those things. So I was like, man, this is, this is a church that's, that's serious 
um, about doctrine and about holding the line. So that was uh, really appealing to me and my wife in bringing us out here. And it's been a, a great joy um, first two years, you know, like any pastorate, um, especially with COVID and everything else. Uh, early on, I've had some road bumps and some challenges that uh, I've had to rely on the Lord through, but uh, he's guided us every step of the way. That's well, that's fantastic. It's so good to hear um, a little summary of where you are. And one of the things that I remember very distinctly about our, our conversation we had in the at the background of a dear deacon in our congregation 10 years ago was your passion for biblical exposition and uh, instructing and nourishing the people through uh, faithful Bible preaching. So I've always, I remember that conversation fondly, and I think you've lived that out very uh, consistently this, this last decade here. One of the things you and I have uh, discussed uh, off the record here, we have talked a little bit about uh, the labors of the current evangelical ethos, which appears to be going in wherever the wind goes. Yeah, And this kind of, um, you know, certainly beginning with, with the COVID situation, with this sort of disembodied perspective on theology, and wherever the church is going to go, it's not going towards a more um, robust orthodoxy, at least immediately. I can see a long-term direction where we're, we go back to some uh, faithful roots. But several years ago, and this must have been uh, over 10 years ago, there was a, a famous um, picture painted of a group of young evangelicals. And I think Colin Hansen, if you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Colin Hansen gave the title of this group, the Young, Restless, and Reform Movement. Was it Colin Hansen that came yeah. up with the term? Uh, I don't know if he came up with it. I think he might have coined that um, in USA or in Christianity Today. Okay. And they... I, I do know that they asked him to basically develop that idea in a book, which uh, I can't remember what the book is titled, uh, but I think it's The Young, Restless, and Reformed. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. I read that uh, several years ago. It was, it was fascinating because at that time, and you and I can share the same uh, perspective, at that time, we both felt very young, uh, very yeah. restless. We desired yeah. a lot of change, and we held... Uh, firmly to the five solas and the five points of Calvinism, the things that kind of unite the general reform evangelical community. Well, that group obviously has matured. Um, what happened to that uh, that group of fine, youthful revolutionaries? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about YRR, that was very much a movement that I think I identified with. It's, it's, you know, I, I became a Calvinist because my, uh, my father grew up as a Presbyterian and he gave me a book in high school called Tulip and <laughs> I read it and, and I started listening to, to John MacArthur and some other uh, Calvinist, um, if you will. Um, but then when I was in um, late high school, college, uh, John Piper, through the Passion Movement, really started to um, reach a lot of people with Reformed theology. Um, a lot of college students, when I, when I was at Texas A&M, that's where I did my undergraduate work, uh, there was an awakening on the campus at A&M um, in Reformed theology. You know, people were, were really uh, plugged in um, with, uh, with Reformed theology in various college groups. Uh, you know, people were in 
cage stage uh, <laughs> uh, Calvinist mode in, 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 in the Baptist church, causing all sorts of problems, right, for like their, their college director. So it was very much a, uh, a movement early on. And, and there was a, a unity in that movement really around um, the, just God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty in providence in in governing all things. Uh, there was a unity in God's sovereignty and salvation. And it was like all these people at the same time started to say, yes, I see this in scripture. I see that God is, you know, Romans 8, 28. He, he really is sovereign. He really is calling people to himself. He's really doing all these things. And, oh, wow, there's other people that share the same beliefs. And, and I, I didn't even realize these other people uh, were in the evangelical movement. Um, and, and, and let's get, you know, let's get together. Let's have a powwow yeah. and, um, and, and talk about this. And really, that's how uh, we, you and I were talking before, but that's what led me to your church, to Providence, when I was uh, a second lieutenant, newly minted uh, at the Naval Air Station there in Pensacola. I just got on Google and, and Googled um, reformed churches in Pensacola because I wanted that doctrine. Yeah. And and that's how I found um, your church. Now, like that question, what has happened to the the YR the Young Restless Reformed, um, that's that's an interesting question. I would love to hear your thoughts on it as well. But one of uh, my theories is is within the YRR there even in the beginning of the movement there was this impulse towards cultural relevance. And um, the, the kind of name that that went under was contextualization. Mm-hmm. How can we contextualize the Christian faith um, with the current culture? And, you know, this, this goes back to all so many of your discussions regarding Abraham Kuyper and, and Christ's lordship over culture. But I think there has been an impulse within the YRR um, instead of saying, how can we project a Christian culture in this world, instead asking how can we contextualize secular culture and make it Christian? This, this is just a theory of mine. And, um, and so I, I think that that has been over the past 10 to 12 years, really the Achilles heel of the YRR is yes, it was Calvinistic. It was doctrinally centered. It was big God in the beginning. Um, but it also at the same time from the beginning had this, um, had this contextualization impulse in it. And so as the culture has moved further and further and further and further left, that has caused all sorts of splinters, within the YR movement. And really, you know, as you look around, um, there's really not much of the movement left anymore. Um, that's just, that's just my opinion. It's, you know, there's, there's still reformed evangelicals to be sure, but this whole, you know, young college students, uh, that I'm aware of aren't, aren't becoming reformed. There's not that interest that there was 
when I was a, a college student, you know, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you see a lot of the uh, younger voices, evangelical voices uh, going towards? Are they going towards a, you know, sort of a mega church expression? Are they going towards, you know, I've had some younger friends who ended up going towards uh, Eastern Orthodoxy mm-hmm. as a response to what they perceive to be uh, a shallow expression of, the, of, of Christian faith. Uh, what, what has been your experience, uh, maybe in your part of the country there? Well, there is a deep sensitivity to the culture mm-hmm. and, and more and more, especially students on public university campuses, you, you know, you're either being bombarded with socialistic ideas, mm-hmm. critical theory, feminist, uh, feminist ideologies, all those things they're being bombarded with. And so to be a Christian and hold to a conservative evangelical belief system is very, is very looked down upon. You know, I was talking to one of my cousins recently, she's a student at the university of Texas in Austin. And she's just like, look, like if I were to say even my political beliefs um, in many ways, I would be laughed, laughed at in the classroom. Um, You know, things like that. It's just very um, the collegiate campuses are very hostile to conservative Christianity. So with that, there's a real impulse to be, to move towards a more progressive form of Christianity, right? Where we're holding to some of the culture's ideals regarding sexuality, marriage, gender, uh, now race, that's become the big one uh, the past year, where we're holding to those ideals. And we're also trying to, to, to wed that to a, to a type of Christianity that that really isn't historic Orthodox Christianity at all. Yeah, that that raises a, a couple of interesting, um, uh, you know, conversations on that that very topic. There, it, it seemed my my own perspective, somebody who kind of lived now in my in my forties now, so I've seen movements kind of come and go. I've seen um, I've seen the uh, the emergence of ideas that had that the the ingredients to revolutionize civilization, you know, last no longer than six months. And as somebody who was involved in a couple of these movements, at least as an outward, uh, not as a fundamental face of it, but somebody who was attempted to popularize them, it it seems that the mistake that a lot of the movements have made, um, you know, Young Restless Reform as an example, that there was an incredible amount of zeal but very little ecclesiastical rootedness um, as I have viewed it. So there were an, in, an incredible attempt to draw the numbers and they did that very easily. I mean, there was a time in back in the um, 2010 and 11, that if you would post anything that had the YRR um, image in it, it would draw thousands of people within a matter of minutes. I mean, it'll be sold out conferences. Yeah. But there was the kind of failures I've seen. This might lead to another question mm-hmm. that I want to uh, ask you also. The failures that I saw in the, in, in the revivalistic tendencies of evangelicalism throughout American history are some of the f- same failures that I've seen in movements like this, you know, New Calvinism, however you want to define it, is that the, the zeal is very profound. I mean, the cage stage is, is there, right? These people are embracing the sovereignty of God. They're embracing um, 
systematic theology. They're embracing uh, heavy and weighty categories that we ought to have as Christians. But the but the zeal sometimes uh, becomes so um, a form of, of a kind of a subtle fanaticism that you lose track of the basic means of grace, the basic uh, rooted uh, rituals that the Christianity has had for thousands of years that have shaped the church to what it is today, but now they're being replaced by things that are very flashy and bright and attractive when the gospel seems to call us always back to those things that have shaped Christendom since the days of Augustine. Any any thoughts there? Any follow-up to that? I, I do not necessarily have a problem with zeal um, as much as um, I think what you're getting at. And one of the elements that you're getting at is how a lot of the the movement, and this is indicative of not just the young restless reform movement, but all of the neo-evangelical movement of the past 70 years, but how much of it is not rooted in the local church. It's rooted in uh, coalitions. It's rooted in conferences. It's rooted in parachurch organizations. uh, Yeah. Parachurch organizations. And, um, and I think this lends to one of its weaknesses. I mean, it's a strength in that you can gather a, a large number of people, but it's also a weakness when you're trying to keep a coalition or a parachurch ministry together. It's, and what I mean by that is it's much easier to teach your people at a church. Um, hey, this is, this is what we believe. This is how we, um, this, this is how we receive the grace that God has given us through these normal means of grace that you were talking about through, through the word, through the sacraments, these, this is the way that we do normal church life. This is our, this is how we walk with God. It's easier to build that consensus with the church than it is with a broad coalition. And the, the, I think one of the things that you're seeing right now in the, in the broader evangelical reform world is people aren't speaking the truth like they probably should be because they're worried about, Oh, well, what are the other people in the coalition going to think? What, what are the other people in this uh, parachurch ministry going to say uh, about me calling out, for example, critical race theory or same sex attraction? What are people going to say about that? And so there's a real hesitancy on the part of some evangelical leaders to speak the truth because they know that they'll maybe lose a place at the table within that evangelical constituency. But what, but this goes back to if, when you're rooted and anchored in the church and, 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 and you're really being um, spearheaded by a doctrinal impulse rather than a large consensus impulse, then it's, it's so much, easier to stick to your guns and say, Hey, this is where we're at. This is what we believe. This is what we do. This is how we're forming uh, a church community. This is the culture that we're trying to lift up. That's great. That's great. I, you know, we, there's a lot of uh, interesting conversations going on in the counseling world that I usually spend a lot of time in about identity in Christ. The the identity conversation, which is really fundamental. Christians have lost a sense of their own identity. One of, one of the questions, however, that doesn't really get brought up very much is uh, 
sort of the Pauline conversation in First Corinthians about how the approval of God ought to be one of the most sufficient elements of Christian existence. And we find ourselves so much connected to coalitions that our identity is so much in personal and uh, individual figures that, or movements, that right. we end up forgetting the, the centrality of the, of the approval that God gives us as, you know, as a sine qua non, as that which cannot ex that which forms who we are. And <clears throat> the categories you mentioned, we talked about, you know, critical race theory, uh, BLM, whatever it might be. It seems like these categories have been, um, have been taken by certain institutions. And now what we're seeing is uh, the area of, of the academy. We're seeing, you know, theological institutions for sure being sort of dominated by these categories so that if anybody would dare oppose these categories that have now been completely absorbed into the DNA of the institution, I mean, they are, you know, they're excommunicado. They're, they're out. They don't have a, a, they don't have a chance anymore within these institutions. And so we are seeing at, at this stage of, of evangelical history, a kind of, of tearing apart that I find particularly saddening, but at the same time, God and his providence has always been in the business of breaking things and bringing them back in a more fuller way. And so I, I don't, and I see this obviously in, in the local church as well, Grant, you probably experienced this in your part of the country there, but here there has been a, um, lots of churches who had 400 people before COVID are now down to 150. Hmm. And so what's happening here? Why are the other 250 not coming back? Well, my estimation goes back to the same ideal here is that there has been, um, that the church has never played ultimately a central role in the way these evangelicals were thinking about reality. Therefore, when the ecclesiastical community is absent for another alternative, you know, virtual, whatever it might be, uh, that becomes its ultimate substitute. People are not saying, I can't wait to be back on the Lord's Day to gather with other human beings face to face. They're saying, no, no, here's a, a perfectly uh, healthy alternative that's keeping me, uh, keeping my Christianity at a very superficial level, and I still get all the status of being a Christian. And mm. so that has been a, um, a, a detriment to the church. But what we have now, that means that the people that are currently with us in our congregations are the future of our churches. And the people, I don't know how you experienced, but the people that we thought surely would be back by this time are not. And, you know, that means, in my estimation, that they were not what they said they were. And God is very carefully separating and bringing yeah. back the purity of the church that doesn't look like the world views it. The purity of the church is looking a little smaller, but we're looking at, as you mentioned, a very committed few that is eager to look on the new reality of the evangelical culture and say, where do we go next? Yeah, I, I think, man, that's so good what you're saying. I, I think that's the the point that we have to really emphasize. That's the point that I'm trying to emphasize with my people is there's been this evangelical pietistic idea, you know, as long as I have a Bible study, a quiet time every day, I pray every day, um, I'm good. And what I'm trying to tell my people is like, no, 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 listen, 
you need to worship with the body of Christ. I mean, that's Ephesians four, right? You, you need the, the hand needs the arm, um, the, the eyes need the head, so on and so forth. You need uh, other people in the body of Christ. It's actually um, more important for you to worship with the body of Christ on the Lord's day than it is for you to pick up your Bible and read it the other days of the week. This, this is, and I'm not minimizing Bible reading. I, you know, I'm all about people trying to read their Bible, but I'm just wanting to emphasize with our people, this is primary. Worship in the church is primary. And I, and I love what you're doing and how uh, you have a robust worship and it's so well thought out and, and there's, and the elements in the, in your liturgy are, are present. We're trying to work towards, um, towards that to a degree. I'm, uh, in the process of, of, of changing our liturgy slightly, we're very limited because we're renting space from another church and we, we have a very strict time on what we can do. Um, but um, teaching people just the robustness and the richness of Christian worship and that that really is where the means of grace are found, that where the word and, and the Lord's Supper um, that's how the Holy Spirit ministers to you in, in a way that isn't experienced when you just, you know, you're on the beach there in Pensacola and you open your Bible. Yeah. It's different, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, and, and, and teaching people their need for the church. And I think as our culture moves further and further left, people are going to start to really um, sense their need for a community in ways that maybe they didn't know or, or, or see before. And, and I think people are coming into my church, but people are from the sound of it are coming into your church that are realizing that like, man, I need the body of Christ. I need other Christians that think like me that are willing to challenge me that are willing to, you know, sharpen my ideas that we're, we're reading similar things, you know, all those things um, are there to help us, uh, live out this Christian life. And I think by God's grace, you know, he is doing something here. He is shaking up churches um, with COVID. He is opening people's eyes to maybe, you know, maybe their church isn't what they thought it was, or maybe their church is better than they realized it was. Mm -hmm. And they're more thankful for it than they ever have been. And God is shaking things up. And, and I think that it's going to be those churches that understand worship and building uh, a new, a real cultural community those churches are going to thrive in the days and years ahead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, well said, brother. I've I've noticed that just uh, statistically here that the, the smaller congregations who have been uh, plodding along, you know, P L O D D I N G, plodding along before COVID for years and yeah. years, have have seen not only a, a numerical growth, which is which which we we think it's important. We don't we don't want to minimize that but also seeing a very healthy a qualitative growth in their congregations. Exactly what you just mentioned here, that, that the people who once look to sort of podcast superstars are kind of gaining a greater appreciation for the fidelity of the local pastor who was able to sustain a healthy momentum and a healthy yeah. uh, worship practice during this whole season. They're saying, you know, thank you, pastor, for your, um, for your for your faithfulness and um, and even I've even heard this in a few occasions. And I also want to apologize to you for not mm. giving you interesting the credit that uh, you deserve for not understanding what your role is in our community. 
And when a crisis hits, suddenly I'm, I, I'm thinking to myself, wow, when everything has been uh, changing and this labor of this man here, you know, in his 30s, 40s, 50s, and that has remained the stable thing of our community. And uh, to me, I see that as a, um, a wonderful uh, testament of the simple, basic fidelity of a gospel man who is not in it for uh, the fame or the success. He's in it for the approval of God and the uh, yeah. continuation and the, 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 the blessings of the kingdom as it, um, as it touches its local community. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the Pauline impulse, right? I mean, that's, that's uh first Corinthians four, you know, Paul says, this is how you are to regard me as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. And he says to the Corinthians, like, look, at the end of the day, you don't judge me. Um, you're not my, you're not going to be my judge. I'm not even going to get to judge myself. Yeah. Um, it's Christ who is going to be my judge. And so I think as a pastor, um, I've been going back to that <laughs> in the midst of COVID and uh, just, just reminding myself and, and similar along the lines of what you're saying, Yuri, is that um, what matters is my faithfulness to my congregation and what God thinks about that faithfulness. Um, what doesn't matter is what the world thinks of me, or even for that matter, what my congregation thinks of me. Mm -hmm. and, and that principle has been so liberating for me. Um, but I, I think people are waking up to that too, as, as we're seeing so many celebrity pastors um, be disqualified, unfortunately, and celebrity personalities, you know, things are coming out about them that, that are eye-opening and jaw-dropping at times. And, and really show that their personal spirituality wasn't anywhere near what their public persona portrayed them to be. Mm -hmm. uh, people's eyes have been opened. I think people have felt frustrated by some evangelical leaders' unwillingness to address the cultural issues that, that we've been facing. And people are saying, yeah, I want to I hear from my local pastor. I, you know, this is really... Um, this is really where I'm being fed. This is where the word of God is, is coming unabashedly um, without fear. And uh, this is what I want. This is, this is where my family needs to be. Yeah. That, that, that um, the question about uh, leadership style and, and tactics for, especially for us in the reformed evangelical community and the, you brought up the uh, first Corinthians, which keeps coming back to my mind here. And Paul says, I was, a, I was a father to you. There, there seems to be, in our day, uh, a hunger for, for father figures, right? And we don't have, we don't have to go to uh, Roman Catholic priesthood to think of fathers yeah. in that category. Paul says, I was a father unto you. as if, So he acted fatherly towards his, towards his parishioners, towards his people. The, if you can talk a little bit about that, Grant, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what do you foresee as... Um, you know, every pastor is going to bring their own personality, right? I have yeah. I have all sorts of cultural backgrounds. I'm Latin American, um, but when you think of pastoral faithfulness and the kind of leadership style that has obviously not succeeded in our modern culture, right? Um, I have a good friend who is a um, is a PCA pastor in Tennessee, 
and his presbytery had during COVID 13 pastors resign during the COVID season for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Um, when you think about that question about leadership style and tactics, what do you think is, um, what do you think is needed in our evangelical reform world? Courage. I, I think, uh, well, I'll, I'll mention that first, but okay. what I have seen, this goes back to just our whole conversation, but the leaders that have made decisions in order to try and keep consensus and coalitions together have not fared well. Mm. And uh, I, I was listening to um, a podcast that Doug Wilson was doing and he, he mentioned a book uh, by a Jewish guy named Friedman. And the book is called uh, Failure, to, Failure of Nerve. And um, I picked it up and, and read it. And basically, the, the thesis of the book is that uh, one of the uh, failures of modern leadership is that leaders have just tried to make decisions to keep a, to, to keep a consensus together. You know, whether whatever whatever organization or institution it is, it's it's I'm going to make decisions that basically keeps everybody together and keeps everybody happy. And Friedman's thesis is, no, that's actually not the job of a leader. The job of the leader is to to push and say, hey, this is where we need to go. Let's move over here and and challenge people. Now, the reason why the book is called Failure of Nerve is because whenever you do that, whenever you try and move move a consensus or move a, a group of people, there's pushback. Right. There's the emails, there's the, you know, the hard conversations, there's the people that say, well, I'm off the bus now. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, we read a book, I read a book in college called who moved my cheese, <laughs> uh, you know, about these mice and, 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 and changing something and just how, how we fail to adapt to any type of change and how just we hate it. We don't want it. And so it, it really is a difficult challenge for a leader to bring change and to move the consensus. So that's Friedman's basic thesis. And, and I think what we're seeing, man, is people that just make decisions to keep their constituency together, especially with COVID, have failed massively in all these issues because people have been so splintered. So what, what the church needs and what they've always needed is somebody who's courageous enough to say, hey, this is what the Bible says, and this is where we're going to go. And this is, this is what we believe, so therefore, X, this is what we're going to do. So that courage is, is really needed. And, and um, you, know, you see this throughout church history over and over and over again. But you know, everybody this past week was celebrating Martin Luther and the Diet of Worms. And, you know, his courage to stand, right? Well, how many, how many people weren't standing? You know, how many people right. weren't before Emperor Charles uh, in Worms, right? How, it was Luther who was right. there because he was willing to push. Uh, you know, he had the nerve enough to stand there, you know, and say, you know, here I stand. I can do no other. And so that type of leadership um, to... Uh, to, to stand for truth, even at great cost, is what's needed. And then also, what you were getting at a minute ago about uh, fatherhood and 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 those types of relationships in ministry, I think are invaluable. Um, one of the things I've been talking with a friend of mine about is just you become like the people you are friends with. 
You become like the mentors that coach you. You become like the books that you read. And so if you're not surrounded with a band of brothers, uh, I read uh, Stephen Nichols' book about R.C. Sproul recently. Sproul called them his foxhole buddies. You know, if you don't have those foxhole buddies and those mentors that are like pushing you along, um, you're, you are going to just in your flesh, I think, fall back to being more of like that consensus type of leader. But when you're running with guys um, and, and you're communicating with guys that are like-minded, that are pushing you, then, you know, you, it's, it's much easier um, to be encouraged to, uh, to, to be a good Christ-like leader. That's fantastic. Grant, I think the, um, where, where we are right now at, at history, history is ripe for faithful pastoral theology. History is ripe for grasping much more so uh, the role of Jesus as shepherd over his flock than we probably were, you know, a year and a half ago. There are people all over the church, people coming to our congregations, seeking to be shepherded because obviously um, their shepherd has disappeared. Uh, Their shepherd disappeared for a variety of reasons. um, And they're wanting to come in and hearing a faithful, consistent message to what you said there, a courageous message, a courageous message that is essentially a ministry of repetition. As I told my congregation, this is part of the pastoral ministry is a ministry of repetition. You're constantly going to be hearing similar themes again and again. Why? Because we have a profound tendency to forget things. And awesome. also, and people are going to be very hungry for the kind of Baxterian shepherding the Richard Baxter kind of shepherding that says, I know you by name and you're not going to be just a, a, a lonely wandering soul under my pastoring and under my shepherding. And I think those are, those are two things that uh, really stick out in our conversation that you mentioned that I think are very crucial. And I also think they provide a very healthy and simple outline for uh, moving forward in the leadership of the church, because what the church will need today it's not uh, more coalitions. They can be helpful. More parachurch ministries, they can be helpful. But at the end of the day, all these parachurch ministries and these coalitions and these conferences are going to have to disassemble. And as they disassemble, they have to go to their separate places. Yeah. And on Sunday morning, they have to be somewhere. And that somewhere is, I think, where the kingdom of God resides with most power and authority, which is at the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments the faithful practice of church discipline, and that's where life begins. And if Sunday becomes merely practice for life, then you can miss practice. But if Sunday becomes the game, then what happens during the week is practice for the game. And I think um, I think you and I are very like-minded in that regard, and I think we Absolutely. see the future of reform leadership as one that involves courage and also good shepherding. So for those who are listening to Kyperian, keep these two principles in mind. Uh, Grant, any, any other thoughts you want to add to this conversation? Man, I mean, we, I think we could talk for a long time about historical examples. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know how much time you have, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I, 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 this just keeps playing out over and over and over again in history. You know, in seasons, uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, a, a season of, of, of a movement, you know, and Paul mentions that in Second 
Timothy four, he talks about, you know, in season and out of season. And um, right now we're in a different season, but what does, you know, Paul call us to, what does God call us to? Well, he calls us to be faithful Mm -hmm. um, regardless of the season. And uh, I think it's those that are faithful um, that put their cell up and, and do the, do the little things right. And you, you know, you're just, you just kind of wait for the Holy spirit to move again. And mm-hmm. that's what church history teaches us is it's, it's faithfulness over a long period of time. And then ultimately God is going to use faithful men, uh, faithful women in his church. And, uh, and so we got to be ready and, um, and be faithful. My old buddy, it's good to reacquaint uh, our friendship here, uh, Grant Castleberry, Senior Pastor of Capital Community Church. Grant, uh, real joy. Hope we'll do this very soon, brother. Yeah. Hey, it was fun. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. We're blessed. Yeah.